Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. And we expect our money queue would be safer in that regard because, as I mentioned, the differential between the ability and the affinity of 41BB over PDL1 over 41BB is so much greater. And indeed, as I mentioned, we have not seen any hepatotoxicity in animals, including monkeys. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Bench Talk Bios, a podcast series by LifeSite Partners where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. My guest today is Dr. Jay May. He is the CEO of Antigene. And from what I gathered from his CV, an incredibly busy man. Doctor, welcome to the Bench Top Bio podcast. Thank you, Neil. So uh, in order to orient our listeners today, I'm going to ask you the hardest question first, and that is, can you give me the elevator pitch for Antigen? And I mean in a minute or less, as in where you headquartered, how long have you been in business, and as briefly as possible, what sort of science are you doing there? Great. So as a physician scientist and uh, termed drug developer, I think we follow where the science leads us and also where the greatest medical needs are. And that is either targeting diseases, and we have seen a breakthrough research work that allows us to develop more efficacious, effective, safer medicines, or follow the geography and where the unmet medical needs are emerging, wherever they are. That's why at Antigen, we have a tagline and we call it treating patients in beyond borders. And then we follow that. So Antigen has been in the full operation since April 2017. So we are approaching a fifth year anniversary. Wow. And so we are located, and surprisingly, across multiple countries and continents. We have colleagues uh, on mainland China, we also have operations and uh, affiliates and uh, offices in Australia, in Singapore, in South Korea, in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and uh, the United States. And that's where I am on the East Coast, and I'm joining you from today. See, that's right. I knew it wouldn't be a short answer, but that was pretty good. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to talk a lot more about Antigen in a few moments. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about how the company was founded, which you are the founder. So let's start with you. Where were you born, sir? I was born in Hunan, China. When I introduce, when I say Hunan, and then the initial reaction from a lot of folks was, where is that? <laughs> and I say, well, the Hunan restaurant, just around the corner in your neighborhood. Yeah. And I own that place. And so <laughs> when I say Hunan restaurants, and people recognize it right away. <laughs> and it's known for very flavorful and spicy cuisine. And that's where I was originally born. All right, then. So you were enjoying that cuisine while you decided that you wanted to be a doctor. You went on to the Hunan Medical University. 
This was class of 1989. Now, to be fair, to be honest, was this a long-standing dream of yours or something that your parents really wanted? Well, actually, I wanted to be a journalist and oh, uh, wow. to be like you, Neil. And then when I was <laughs> young and then I dreamed uh, to really be able to travel around the world, interviewing people and then to experience and to see different parts of the world. And that turned out uh, in 1983, when I graduated from high school, applying for college. And what caught my eye is this English medicine program. I know it sounds strange. Mm -hmm. Basically, what it is, is medical program that is being taught in English. A little bit about the history. Guna Medical College was originally found by Dr. Hume and from Jiao in, I think, 1911, a little over 100 years ago. It was one of the most modern medical colleges. And then they have an English medical program, and I found this quite interesting. It would allow me to utilize my interest, to expand my interest mm -hmm. in English language, and to combine that with medicine, and that's why I decided and to apply for the program, and I was accepted in 1983 and graduated in 1989. There was a six-year program, and the exchange program with Yale Medical School. Interesting, interesting. This might explain my next question. So right after graduate school, you decided to extend your training with a PhD in pharmacology and toxicology, University of Maryland. So this is a huge decision for any young man, but probably the most important of your life to that point, because not only was it a new discipline, it was halfway across the world. Was there any question in your mind that this was the right move? Well, while I was in medical school, what I found most interesting among all the courses and subjects was pharmacology. It's basically that to study foreign substances mm -hmm. and how they interact with our body, a simple way to put it. And now we know at the, not only at the cellular level, but also at the genetic level. And so these have tremendous impact. And then as a physician in training, I started to appreciate to be able to manage, for example, a particular condition with a patient under my care to a large extent, and uh, is what kind of medicines at our disposal that we can offer to uh, these patients. So uh, that was very intriguing to me. And then that's why I decided after medical school to pursue even uh, advanced study in pharmacology. Mm -hmm. to better understand uh, how these drugs work. But of course, in the United States, and uh, is needing in healthcare in general and biomedical research in particular. Plus, I graduated from exchange program, as I mentioned, with Yale. And so it became very logical for me to see and uh, there are programs and then that will be uh, suitable for me. And then fortunately, I was offered a full scholarship to study pharmacology at the University of Maryland in Baltimore in 1989, right after I graduated from medical school. Well, and continuing on with that rather very good fortune, after your graduate school, you also wound up at the NIH, which is one of the finest medical research facilities in the world. So just give me a minute or two about that. Did you continue in pharmacology or did you go into something more specific? That's a very interesting question. So when I was a graduate student and uh, studying on my PhD, uh, stumbled onto a molecule called nitric oxide, oh. NO, 
Yeah, yeah. So short. You know that I believe in 1991, 1992, and the three researchers won Nobel Prize for this molecule simply called NO, N-O, oxide. And my PhD thesis was focusing on the nitric oxide as a neurotransmitter. Yeah. And we know nitric oxide plays multiple roles. And it is also being implicated in during chronic inflammation mm-hmm. where nitric oxide is being induced and the or nitric oxide synthesis, the enzymes being induced, and then large quantity of nitric oxide being produced and can form other reactive molecules such as uh, superoxide and others, and then uh, contributing to the uh, cancer etiology, particularly, for example, inflammatory bowel diseases. And these uh, patients eventually, unfortunately, at a later years of the life, and uh, many of them develop colorectal cancer. So there's a link between nitric oxide overproduction of like unregulated overproduction nitric oxide with colorectal cancer. And that prompted me to look into uh, continuing research on nitric oxide at the U.S. National Cancer Institute. Well, I have to say, as a former graduate student many years ago, I'm a little jealous of the NIH. I have been in their labs. It's quite something. But the only downside I've ever heard about the NIH is you can't really make a lot of money. I mean, it's a government job. Like Steve Rosenberg, he still is not a rich man because they won't let him. <laughs> so in 2001, you started your corporate career. First at J&J in New Jersey. You were there for five years, involved in R&D. Then on to Novartis Oncology in 2006. You were the senior director of clinical development there, also in New Jersey. Then in 2008, you signed on for a rather long stay in this business, eight years at Celgene in Summit, New Jersey. You're an executive director of clinical development there, that in hematology, where amongst other drugs, you were the only leading member of the team that developed uh, Revlimid. This is one of the most effective cancer drugs that ever been approved. Now, I'm going to assume, after all this experience, you know a great deal about New Jersey. You also seem to know a great deal about drug development scientifically, but I have a question about leadership. You were at Celgene during the time of Saul Bear, who's rather famous. What did you learn about leadership from Saul Bear? It's an excellent question. Well, first, it started with New Jersey. Yes, and then <laughs> uh, spent many years starting from J&J, Lovaris, and Celgene. And now, jokingly, uh, I call uh, New Jersey as uh, the American farmland. P-H-A-R-M. And so now I had the privilege to work with a team of scientists and the physicians. And during my eight and a half years tenure at uh, Saojin, when I joined Saojin in 2008, uh, there were less than a thousand of us. And so uh, Sao originally, as you know, that uh, trained as a chemist and then uh, became an industry visionary leader and is still very active in leading companies, Mm -hmm. big or small. And I had the privilege to observe him, his leadership, which is two things. And one is very inclusive. And second is be a good listener. And as experienced, as gifted he is, and I found is very humbling to learn and that he always spent his time and then to listen to what his colleagues had to say. And then Inevitably, most of us were much junior, less experienced than him. So that was basically, I think, something I learned. And then I think this helped me tremendously with my 
research Korea and South Jin and later be frank and uh, with the start of the of Antigen over the past uh, almost five years now. So you're at Novartis, you're at Celgene, you're at J&J. These are big, powerful companies with, I'm sure, lovely pension packages and everything. And you decided, yeah, no, I'm going to go found a company. It's not an interesting question. So you probably see there's a pattern here. And then I started with J&J. This is a multinational conglomerate and branches into pharmaceutical, consumer products and medical diagnostics and then medical devices, and then to an organization that is a little more focused, Novartis Oncology, and uh, right. of course, under the Novartis Pharmaceutical, which is, again, a pharmaceutical giant. But Novartis Oncology was more focused and then uh, best known for developing, for example, Clivac. It's a transformational drug and then for patients with leukemia. And so... Uh, particularly Philadelphia chromosome positive CML, and then uh, was one of the most successful, the so-called targeted medicines that was developed more than 20 years ago. And then from Novartis to even a smaller organization, uh, emerging biotech, if you will, and mm-hmm. uh, Saojin. In 2008, as I mentioned, Saojin was still relatively small and uh, was a New Jersey-based uh, company that is trying to expand into other parts of the world, into Europe, into Asia-Pacific. And as one of the global clinical leaders, and then I had the fortune to lead a part of that growth into emerging markets, if you will, into, including uh, Asia-Pacific. And I led the first clinical trials on mainland China, in Taiwan, in South Korea, and then also in Latin America. And then I traveled frequently to Eastern Europe, Romania, Hungary, Poland, Russia. And as you know that in our business as drug developers, and clinical development is always leading the way, so to speak, in the frontier, expanding our corporate footprint. Mm-hmm. And by initiating, for example, clinical trials, engage with health authorities and then physicians in the countries we are conducting studies. And then we have robust outcome from those trials. And then we'll be applying for NDA approval and then your commercialization colleagues. And that's when they come in. So in other words, that clinical development is always ahead of commercialization, understandably. And then I had the privilege and then the luck and then to really and uh, to grow with Saojin over the eight and a half years as a global clinical leader. That doesn't explain to me why you wanted to start your own company. Ah, that's a serendipity, if you will. Uh, there are two things that prompt me to think about uh, starting Antigen. Now, first, in 2015 and 2016, Saojin was growing phenomenal. We were operating by that time more than 70 countries. So when I joined, and it was primarily a company that confined in North America and then just started its operation in Western Europe. And by 2015, 2016, we were operating in multiple continents. And then the management and started to evaluate our business strategies in different parts of the world, including on mainland China. So we formed uh, a management or a team we called the uh, South China Strategy Study Group. And I was part of the team and basically to find best ways to grow our business in that part of the world, to maximize the potentials of the medicines we have been developing, and also create efficiencies, if you will, 
So long story short, at the end of uh, working groups and two years of work, our recommendation is a full partnership. And hence, the partnership you may be aware, and we are launched in 2017 between Saojin and a company called Beijing. Mm-hmm. And so that's the partner we decided to work with in China. And then along the same strategy, and then Saojin supported the creation of Antigen. So again, I was very fortunate to be able to lead the creation of Antigen with Saojin as our founding partner, our first drug or drug candidate. And we started to work on, and that was in-licensed. And from Saojin, Saojin is called the CC223. The Antigen is ATG008. And so this is a second generation mTOR1 and TOR2 dual inhibitor. Mm-hmm. And, and Saojin and also since as in investor and shareholder, and again, along the strategy to either identify or in the case of Antigen and to start and a company eventually hopefully will become the local partner of the company. All right. So that answer explains the next question that I now don't have to ask, which is what is in license and build? So you already had these assets, you had these relationships, and you could go ahead and start your own company with an asset. And let's talk about that asset right now. It is called Expovio. Expovio is a drug approved in the United States for a relapsed refractory multiple myeloma, as well as DLBCL, the form of lymphoma. And it is a small molecule inhibitor of exporting one. This is a nuclear exporter. And as I said, this was licensed, and it was licensed from Carrier Farm. Now, as I said, this drug is already approved in the U.S., but you've already mentioned a lot of your experience in Asia. So what are your aspirations for Expovio? More indications, more markets. What's your plan? It actually didn't happen by chance. We decided to work with Carrier Farm and then the work on Expovio, first in class and only in class XPO1 inhibitor. Because this is a drug, as you mentioned, has been approved in multiple myeloma and uh, diffuse large piece of lymphoma. When we started and talking to colleagues at uh, Chirofound in late uh, 2017, early 2018, the drug was uh, still in uh, phase two studies. And it didn't happen by chance that we wanted to work on a drug focusing on myeloma and lymphoma. Which, as you know, and then some of the audience and who are listening in, if you are familiar with the Saojin story, and that was a company that was leading globally in developing drugs for exactly this type of uh, hematological malignancies, yeah. myeloma and lymphoma. So that didn't happen by chance. And we wanted to start working on diseases that we are most familiar with in clinical development, in regulatory submission, all the way to commercialization. So in other words, this really, the in-licensing, if you will, and that was by design. We just didn't in-license any molecule. Right, and right. Uh, we decided to work on this uh, first-in-class larval mechanism by that time, and uh, we saw the data, and uh, the drug was able to overcome resistance and uh, develop after patients being treated with multiple classes of different drugs, including some of the drugs were developed by Saojin. For example, Revnimid and Palmolist mm-hmm. and the other drugs, Valke and Duratumumab, which is anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody that was developed by my another former employer, Johnson Johnson. So we were very familiar with this 
space. When I say we, there are several of us, as you can see from our leadership on our website, and came from Saojin. And there was the strategy for us, basically, that as an entry point, as a company to focus on the diseases that we are very familiar with. And we have not only a global experience from clinical development, regulatory, all the way to commercialization, but we also have a lot of regional expertise, as you touched on. And why China? Why Asia? So I myself was one of the global clinical leaders, as I mentioned earlier, I spent a lot of time in Europe, in Latin America, and Asia Pacific, including China, and the other markets next door to China. Our chief medical officer, Kevin Lynch, a colleague of mine, and dating from Novartis, where we worked together, and later at Saojin, he was head of clinical development and medical affairs with Saojin in APAC, based in Sydney, well, Australia. So I, I understand that you have the contacts and the scientific experience, but it's sort of a business conversation. What is the market like in China for multiple myeloma? Historically, multiple myeloma was underdiagnosed in China and in other developing countries, emerging markets, if you will. Mm-hmm. And now, with the growth of the economy and the rising standard of healthcare, we've seen more and more patients on a yearly basis and more and more patients being diagnosed with this disease. It didn't happen suddenly, which is simply because these patients previously were not diagnosed timely. For example, many of the myeloma patients in China and the other developing countries as well, they presented uh, initial presentations with uh, thoracic surgeons because of bone fracture or nephrologists because a late stage of myeloma and uh, contributes, of course, renal failure. So the survival of uh, patients in China in particular, for example, were much shorter. And still, up to today, it's about half of that in the United States. So in other words, there's a greater unmet medical needs. And then you have more patients being diagnosed every year. And then the survival, even though it's only half of the U.S., it starts to expand. Patients start to live longer and longer with more level medicines. For example, I led the effort to get a revenue-made approved. Mm-hmm. which is one of the backbone therapies for multiple myeloma. And the drug was approved in early 2013. It was uh, nine years ago. So that really as one of the major drugs in multiple myeloma and the help and the patients and to live longer. So in other words, the market is growing and the new uh, cases or the incident rates are on the rise and there were also prevalence rates because patients live longer now. So still with a higher medical needs, if you look at in the United States, roughly over the past 15, 20 years, we have about 15 level medicines developed, approved. And for myeloma alone, about half of that have been approved in China. So we think the gap is greater. And then that's also the reason that we think, as I mentioned earlier, we go where the medical needs are either based on science or discovery or geography. And you are looking to expand indications, yes? AML? Indeed. Okay. AML, MDS, myelofibrosis? Myelofibrosis, and then uh, myelodysplastic syndrome. And then most recently, a few days ago, our uh, partner, uh, Carifarm, just launched a positive phase 3 trial called the Ciendo endometrial cancer. So as a maintenance therapy, and then this is the very first one, uh, endometrial cancer for patients 
who achieved at least a PR, some of them CR, after a platinum-based chemotherapy. And basically, the current standard of care is once you're done with uh, chemotherapy or six or eight cycles, and then with uh, a PR or better, and uh, you're basically that uh, being sent home and watch and wait, and then to keep your fingers crossed. Hopefully, the disease won't come back. From the Seattle study, what actually struck me with surprise is that in the placebo arm, patients were basically on their watch and wait, if you will, the control arm. Their meeting PFS was only 3.8 months. In other words, for patients who successfully, quote unquote, completed the chemo, we've reached somewhat satisfactory and the clinical outcome with the PR, even some of the CR, and about half of them would progress in less than four months. So the clearly and the shows, and there's a huge amount of medical needs, and the continuing therapy, if you will, is needed after the completion of chemo. So we think, uh, and uh, Expovio, and is uniquely positioned and with the positive phase three study, and that could be another indication beyond multiple myeloma and diffuse not being cell lymphoma, and in this case, in solid tumor. All right, so let's move on to the next asset. This drug does not have a name as yet, just a number. It's still in development. ATG017. This is a small molecule inhibitor of ERK1 and 2, which is a target in, in the cell cycle pathway. I was looking at a little research here. I found a Nature paper from 2007 that suggested this was a really good cancer target, but it's now quite a bit few years later and we still don't have this. Does that mean there's a drug development challenge here? You're absolutely correct. Along the pathway is so-called the MAP kinase pathway. At the very top is the RAS. We recently have a drug approved against the G12C mutant, the KRAS. And then the RAF and the MAC and the downstream to RAS and above ERK1 and 2. And there have been drugs against uh, or selective RAS or MAC inhibitors. But so far, there hasn't been any selective uh, ERK inhibitors been approved. But this is a very, very intriguing, very interesting target. It's further downstream along the pathway and to the targets I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. But uh, so far, all the effort and uh, some of them are still ongoing, including this molecule we call the ATG017, a highly potent selective ERK1-2 inhibitor in antigens pipeline, are still in development. And we are optimistic. This is a very unique molecule with a higher degree of selectivity and a higher potency and better cellular membrane permeability and a good PK profile. And the drug is in phase one and dose escalation study mm -hmm. in Australia. And we are in cohort number four as a model therapy. We expect that this drug would have at least drugs targeting ERK1-2 inhibitor reasonably we expect uh, would have a single agent activity, although we also have decided and will expand in addition to monotherapy, also in combination, for example, with immune checkpoint inhibitors. In that regard, we recently launched a partnership with Bristol-Myers Squibb. Okay. And as you know, that now Bristol-Myers Squibb is the parent company, if you will, and uh, with uh, of my former employer, Saojin, and that has been acquired <laughs> almost exactly two years ago. So now it comes in circle. Now we are coming back to work with colleagues at uh, BMS again. Terrific. Well, let's talk about the next asset. This is ATG101. Now, this is very familiar to me since I know a lot about cancer immunotherapy. 
This is an immunotherapy drug, straight up. It's a bispecific. It's targeting the very famous PDL1 checkpoint pathway, which is a T cell suppressor, and the difficult to drug 41BB pathway. And this is a T cell stimulator. A lot of people tried to do this, it's not working. My first question here is why combine them? Because the reason it's not working is 41BB has proved to be rather toxic. If you combine them, you can't titrate. So why combine? This is another very interesting question. As you just alluded to, applying uh, 41BB is like uh, putting your foot on the gas pedal and uh, as an accelerator and stimulates the T cells and a simple way to put it. But unfortunately, it also causes toxicities, particularly liver toxicity or hepatotoxicity. And that hindered and the development of uh, anti-41BB and monotherapy in that space. Now, by combining PDL1 with the 41BB, in this case, a bispecific an antibody, mm-hmm. and with uh, the right titration, so in other words, with uh, ATG101 specifically, the affinity and the avidity of the PDL1 component of this molecule is about a hundredfold higher than that of 41BB. So in other words, that uh, ATG101 will be primarily taken up and bound and sequestered in the tumor cells with overexpression of PDL1 before the 41BB activation is being triggered. So you basically zoom in onto the tumor cells and then through the cross-linking then the 41BB activity uh, will start to exert. And then so this way we can avoid the liver toxicity indeed. And in the GLP Pox studies in monkeys, and we uh, dose the drug to as high as 100 mg per kick, and we did not see any liver toxicity. And that is in sharp contrast in some of the other uh, molecules similar in design and the bispecific, which had unfortunately shown some of the liver toxicity in patients. And we expect our molecule would be safer in that regard because, as I mentioned, the differential between the avidity and affinity of 41BB over PDL1 over 41BB is so much greater. And indeed, as I mentioned, we have not seen any hepatotoxicity in animals, including monkeys. This is interesting. I mean, when I read through the deck, I understood it as being more of a, like a gating thing, you know, no, no go, no gating, but this is more like a sink. So it goes into the sink. Okay. Okay. I got it now. I see how that would work. Yeah. So, so it's just selectively being taken up by yeah, yeah. tumor cells that, of course, we know they have a much higher expression of PDL one Okay. That makes sense. That's just, so tell me about it. Where are we in development? So this drug is now in phase one in dose escalation. We have patients being treated, again, in Australia okay. since the fall of last year, 2021. In October last year, we also got the clearance of IND by US FDA. So we are now initiating this study simultaneously in the United States. And then we also are in the process of submitting uh, under the IND review by the Chinese Health Authority, MMPA. So we have so far received a very positive feedback and response. And then now the drug is in clinical trials. And then that we expect these trials will be 
either initiated or continuing and simultaneously in Australia, in the United States, and then Oman and China. Do you have any idea of the readouts yet? Or So we expect some preliminary MPK and toxicity toxicology data, and with fingers crossed, and hopefully some preliminary efficacy data toward the end of this year or early 2023, because those in escalation is underway. As you mentioned earlier, the immune checkpoint inhibitor, which has been a major breakthrough in oncology over the past 10 years, and many patients and have been saved, and then otherwise their lives have been extended and significantly. Just like in oncology, after many decades of effort, we have made a lot of progress, but also unfortunately, in some of the patients, many of them develop resistance or mm-hmm. refractory to immune checkpoint inhibitors. We think a molecule such as ATG101, I would characterize a second-generation immune checkpoint inhibitor with a higher degree of potency and a higher selectivity, as I discussed earlier, and it would offer these patients who otherwise now progressed after either Expovio or Keytruda and other immune checkpoint inhibitors another fighting chance. So I look at the PDL1 component is almost applying the break to the T cell suppressant. Mm-hmm. And then the 41BB part is like putting your foot on the accelerator, a gas pedal, and then stimulate and T cell even further, but hopefully without the collateral damage that is the liver toxicity. So far, we have seen very promising results, at least in animal studies. Excellent. Now, uh, as I suggested at the top of this podcast, that there's a lot of assets we could have discussed here. We simply don't have the time. You do have things in the pipeline that are in-house and not licensed. They're targeting KRAS, CD24, Clauden. This is going to be an ADC. But sadly, we don't have the time to discuss those today. In the meantime, I invite listeners to uh, peruse the company website and download the latest deck. Now, I just have three more questions very quickly. The first is IP. This seems rather complicated. Does it make a difference that you're in Asia now, or is the IP the same? This is a really a very important question. IP is the lifeline of our business. You mentioned that we have a very rich pipeline. We have 15 drugs or drug candidates, and they're in various stages of development, and five of them or so-called in-licensed. In other words, yeah. we have partners, and uh, either Carafon or Saojin, now in this case, BMS now, and the other partners. So from that perspective, we pay them royalties and upfront and be able to use their IP for co-development, uh, co-commercialization, for example. Uh, Expovio, as we discussed, which is a commercial stage product, we have received approval in South Korea, and in China. We expect approval to come in Australia, Singapore, and Taiwan, and Hong Kong in the next few months. And the IP ownership is very, very clear. And it belongs to the original discoverer right, right, right. and our partner. And then the, we have the rights to co-develop and co-commercialize in our territory and the markets I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Among the 15 assets, 10 of them, we have global rights. So the IP is wholly owned and by Antigen, either, again, through in-licensing, the royalty and then upfront and regulatory and commercial and clinical development milestones. Eight of them were in-house discovered. When we started Antigen almost five years ago, as a clinical stage company, and uh, we in-licensed our first asset from Saojin, as I mentioned earlier, and later with uh, 
and Carafon and targeting myeloma and uh, diffuse large B cell lymphoma. We started our in-house discovery at the very beginning. Now, you know that it takes several years for the in-house effort to pan out. It's been more than four years now. That's exactly when we started to see some of the in-house discover molecules to enter into clinical stage as we speak. So there are eight of them. So we have either granted patents, all of them through a PCT, and then or we have applied and submitted and patent applications. So it's very, very clear and very, very important to us that fully respect and protect our own intellectual discoveries at the same time protect our partners and uh, IP and as a local uh, drug developer where we have more intimate knowledge and about uh, protection or whoever happens to infringe on it in obscure market, if you will, we are operating in that space and then uh, we will be able to identify and then tackle that. Okay. Two quick questions to wrap up with. The one is about money. I know nothing about money and most about science, so you can just tell me what the numbers are. What is your current runway and what sort of conversations are you looking to have in the near future with investors? It's a very important question, especially I've seen the market has been somewhat, uh, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) we have seen that recent development and the boom and bust cycle, if you will. But fortunately, we are very well funded. We became a public company in Hong Kong, listed a Hong Kong Stock Exchange in November 2020, a little more than a year ago. And we raised almost 370 million US dollars. And that amount of money is still sitting uh, on a corporate bank accounts. So we have a very strong and balanced sheet. How far does that take you? What kind of runway? Comfortably three years. Because, for example, in the year we just finished, uh, 2021, and we spend about a hundred million US. Wow. So of course, and it will be growing faster and uh, 2022 and beyond. On the other hand, we are revenue generating companies now. Right. And with uh, Expovia approved in South Korea, and um, in China, as I mentioned, we are launching this product in these two markets. Expected approval very soon in Australia, Singapore, then uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan. I think that we have offered some revenue guidance for the year 2022. We're optimistic we'll be generate about the 30 million US dollars. It's not a whole lot. For example, the drugs and then I worked on, I had the privilege to work on Revlimit and probably generate a 30 million US dollars global sales in about a week. <laughs> but <laughs> for a company that is just about four years old and then with a very rich pipeline and then that offers us an opportunity to further develop very promising assets, including the ones we just mentioned, the ERK-1-2 inhibitor mm-hmm. and the anti-PDL-141BB by specific, for which we have global rights for both of them. And that's really another stage of the antigen growth story. All right. Well, as I said at the beginning, you sound like an incredibly busy man. So, sir, I'm going to let you go so you can get back to work. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap. Today, I have been speaking with Dr. Jay May. He is the CEO of Antigen. Doctor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Neil. And uh, really a pleasure to chat with you today. And then look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. 
I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of LifeSize Benchstop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanada at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.